Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are about to get into the news. But before we do, we want to remind you of two things. First, we just released a special with uh, our Taiwan desk, James Lin, discussing Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. So please check that out if you haven't already. And also, we never do this, but if you could actually review us on Apple or your favorite podcast apps, that really helps the show get visibility. So we want more people to listen to us. Otherwise, why would we be doing this? So if you have the time, please do that. Love of the game, man. What are you talking yeah, about? Love of the game. Man. Love, of the game. love the game. Um, all right, Derek, since you so rudely interrupted me, why don't we just get right <laughs> into it and talk about the killing of Al-Zawahiri? So Joe Biden announced, uh, Joe Brandon, Joe Biden, whatever you want to call him, announced on Monday evening uh, that a U.S. drone strike in Kabul uh, over the weekend on Saturday, uh, according to him, killed uh, al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri. You may remember Zawahiri from, you know, videos with Osama bin Laden. He was, um, you know, obviously involved in the planning of the September 11th, 2001 attacks in the U.S., the worst thing that's ever happened to anyone in the history of mankind. And so, uh, you know, this is he succeeded bin Laden, obviously, in 2011 when bin Laden was killed in a U.S. Um, raid of some kind. Uh, he has been serving as the leader of al Qaeda or at least of al Qaeda's central operations uh, over a period where I would argue al Qaeda's central operations have become mostly irrelevant uh, to international Islamist uh, violence or terrorism. And the, the juice is mostly with its regional affiliates. Uh, nevertheless, Z- Zawahiri has has been in seclusion for quite some time. Uh, it was theorized that he was in somewhere in the uh, Afghanistan-Pakistan kind of uh, border area, which is uh, difficult to monitor, a lot of caves, a lot of rugged terrain. It seems as though he moved to Kabul sometime after the Taliban took power uh, in Afghanistan last year. We don't know exactly when. Uh, from what the U.S. government is saying and you know, they're not saying much. Uh, they don't want to compromise. It's always about not compromising sources and methods with this kind of thing. Uh, but from what they're saying, uh, Zawahri's family uh, had they had tracked Zawahri's family to Kabul and they sort of waited uh, to see if he showed up. And sure enough, he did. Uh, he was killed in what appears to have been a drone strike using the uh, fancy Hellfire missile that has like swords or blades or something coming out of it instead of explosives. So there's not a lot, doesn't appear to be a lot of collateral damage. I, I don't think uh, you can take our word for it. You, you can't take the U.S. government's word for it when, when it says there were no collateral casualties. But uh, the Afghan government, the Taliban, uh, are not making any hay out of any like your civilians that were killed or anything like that. And I think if there had been, they probably would be doing that. The Taliban has called the killing a violation of international principles. But al-Zawahiri's presence in Kabul has cast doubt on the Taliban's promise its country would not be a haven for terrorists. In terms of what the Taliban's response has been, they're sort of playing it on both ends to some degree. They've accused the United States of violating the Doha agreement, which was the the deal that the Trump administration signed with the Taliban 
that kind of governed the terms of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, which, you know, is a, is a tacit admission that, that the strike occurred and that Zawahiri was, was uh, killed. Uh, on the other hand, they're, they're still insisting that they're sort of investigating uh, what actually happened, and they're not admitting outright uh, that Zawahiri was killed, and there's been no statement from al-Qaeda. Uh, so, you know, I think probably this is true that Zawahiri was killed in the strike, but uh, I wouldn't say you could call it confirmed yet. So, Derek, does this matter at all? Well, it's fascinating because I, I would say no. I mean, I, I, Zawahiri, again, has been sort of incommunicado for a long time other than the occasional audio, you know, kind of recording, you know, kind of uh, willing the troops into action and so forth, that kind of thing. I, I would I would say no, it doesn't have much repercussion in terms of the war on terror. And that's mostly because uh, people in Washington don't want it to have any impact on the war on terror. They want to keep it going. They want to keep your, uh, you know, your military budget at $850 billion a year. And, and you need, uh, this sort of, uh, threats, these sort of threats in the world. Uh, so the, the commentary that I've seen has been, you know, trying to walk the line between this is a great victory for the United States. And we took out a, you know, an evil, uh, a major evildoer who was planning, you know, imminent attacks in the United States, which, which is sort of about, creating a legal justification for the drone strike. Um, that's, that's a little dubious, but, uh, you know, that's part of what's going on there. But also at the same time, uh, you want to convince people that this doesn't mean anything and that Zawahiri was an afterthought and that Al Qaeda is still hunting you and, you know, could kill you and everyone you you've ever loved at a moment's notice because we need people to be scared. And that's how you get your, uh, your 800 plus, uh, billion dollar a year military budget. In terms of repercussions on Afghanistan, this, this could have some implications. Uh, the Taliban is obviously, uh, displaying some irritation here. Uh, they kind of have to, lest they lose credibility with the only, uh, you know, kind of part of the world that will talk to them, which is the Islamist kind of, you know, hard, uh, hardline Islamist uh, militant movements. Um, so they're irritated. Um, that could affect, you know, any what whatever relationship there is right now between the U.S. government and the Taliban uh, or the Afghan government, I should say. Uh, it, it could worsen that, which would make negotiations on, let's say, restoring the central bank funds that the Biden administration pillaged from Afghanistan on the way out the door uh, would make that even more complicated than it already is. So so there could be some impacts for Afghanistan. I, I don't see any reason to think there would be any impact on, uh, let's say, U.S. military posture around the world. So let's move on now to the biggest news of the week, which was Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. So Derek, give us an update. Yes. So, I mean, people can can listen to our uh, interview with James. I think uh, he's got a lot more insight into this than than I would be able to offer. But <laughs> how uh, dare you? <laughs> Pelosi uh, did, in fact, after kind of playing coy about it, uh, she did, uh, as has been rumored for several weeks, visit Taiwan on Tuesday as part of a congressional junket through Asia. It's taken her to Malaysia and South Korea. I think uh, she started in Singapore. So it was Singapore, Malaysia. Taiwan, and now she's in South Korea. Uh, she's the highest-ranking U.S. official to visit Taiwan since 
uh, Newt Gingrich visited uh, in the, uh, I think, 1996 or 1997. I'm not, uh, I've seen pod. both dates. Uh, yeah. Somehow Taiwan survived that visit. I'm, I'm shocked, frankly. And so, uh, you know, this is a, a pretty major deal in terms of kind of uh, significance of, of the, you know, level of the U.S. official visiting. The U.S. officials obviously visit Taiwan fairly frequently. They're generally kind of mid to low level cabinet uh, officials at most. So having a Speaker of the House show up is uh, is a pretty big deal. The Chinese government certainly regards it as a pretty big deal. It's been uh, it had been saber rattling for for weeks over the possibility of the trip, uh, warning of very serious developments and consequences. And uh, the Biden administration had supposedly, according to uh, a lot of reports in American media, had supposedly warned Pelosi uh, against going. Now, how strenuously they warned her or whether that warning was just for public consumption or Chinese consumption, uh, I don't know. Nevertheless, she she went anyway. Chinese officials now say a Pelosi visit to Taiwan would grossly interfere in China's internal affairs and undermine China's sovereignty. Uh, her stop uh, included a speech to the Taiwanese parliament, a meeting with Tsai Ing-wen, the president of Taiwan. And that's Pretty much it. I mean, even when when she was asked sort of why are you doing this, she, she couldn't really answer except to say that we're, you know, making a statement in defense of, I don't know, freedom and democracy and uh, also in, in support of Taiwan's microchip industry, which is the real thing that the United States uh, wants out of Taiwan and China as well. Uh, there have been a number of responses from the Chinese government and the Chinese military already. Um, none has been particularly apocalyptic. So it's not, you know, we're, I, I don't think we're on the verge of World War Three here, uh, which is good. Um, they've lodged that a diplomatic is good, protest. I, it is. I, I think this is, you know, positive news. They've lodged a diplomatic protest with Washington. They announced uh, that they were going to begin live fire military military exercises in the vicinity of Taiwan. Uh, those have begun. I'll have a, I'll mention those in a, a little bit more in a, in a second here. They have sent a number of military aircraft over the past several days to kind of flirt with the median line uh, across the Taiwan Strait, which is a very sensitive line for the Taiwanese military because, uh, you know, if Chinese aircraft cross that line um, in a hostile, you know, with, with hostile intentions, there's not a lot of time for uh, the Taiwanese military to respond to something like that. So there were all there were all, have also been reports of hacking by probably Chinese hackers. The sense I get from from reading, you know, cybersecurity folks talking about this is that these are probably amateur hackers, not uh, you know personnel of the, uh, the the Chinese government who are hacking like Taiwanese government websites and uh, you know other other sites in uh, in Taiwan. And the Chinese government has also imposed bans on the import of some Taiwanese food products a ban on the export of sand to Taiwan. So a few economic measures, nothing, again, that covers the really the stuff that people really covet from Taiwan, which is which is microchips mostly. Uh, so I, I, all in all, I think a, a relatively measured response. And I, I think uh, the main concern that I would have at this point uh, is these live fire military exercises, which are taking place in some cases within just a few kilometers, like maybe 10 kilometers of, of Taiwanese territory. 
Um, and and this could be very dangerous. The Taiwanese military is on alert. The Chinese military is obviously, you know, firing missiles and rockets into the sea. Um, the U.S. Navy went on alert before Pelosi arrived. I don't know if they've uh, kind of stood down from that yet or if they're uh, still on alert. But having all of these kind of potentially uh, hostile military pieces on alert so close to one another raises the possibility not of a choice to go to war, but of something I hesitate to say accidental. But, uh, you know, a missile fly- flies in the wrong direction or somebody misinterprets something on radar and you suddenly have yourself in a very serious crisis situation. I don't mean to diminish the significance of Pelosi going, which I understand has some political salience for Taiwan, and that's that's great, but uh, she gets to fly away and this stuff is going on and this kind of tension is going to surround Taiwan for at least the next few days, if not longer. So Derek, was it worth it? for our Speaker of the House to go to Taiwan? <laughs> I mean, it depends on why she went, I guess, and I still don't know. I, she hasn't, she's, other than mouthing these kind of platitudes, and she did drop an op-ed in the Washington Post about the trip, and, you know, it's all oh, basically so, the So I've had an op-ed about, in the Washington Post. Well, see, there you go. So <laughs> you, and, you and Nancy Pelosi should give her a call. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I uh, if it was to, like further economic ties between the two countries that can be done in in less you know potentially risky ways if it was just to make a statement so that Pelosi can kind of end her career which you know supposedly she's you know kind of winding things down uh, if she can end her uh, career by the way that a, was said a statement that was a China. rumor in DC yeah. Sorry, Derek. I have yeah, to interrupt no. you. That was a rumor in DC in 2018 and 2019. Oh, exactly. Uh, and that she yeah. was just going to get Trump out, and then she was going right. to retire. So right. I am uh, color me skeptical. Yes, I would. I would be skeptical as well. But yeah, she. I mean, she does have a lot of. Taiwanese and kind of expat Chinese constituents, especially at certain income levels that might interest a speaker of the house who's, you know, worth $250 million herself. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think I love that That's she may so be good. appealing to constituents. She may feel like she's doing uh, something good for the democratic party heading into the campaign. I don't believe that, but I, I think it's possible that she does. So, you know, I, I, I it's hard to say, was it worth it? I would would say probably not. I don't think it was. I don't think anything that happened on this trip was worth even the slim risk that something could go wrong here. And there could be a miscalculation uh, with all the, you know, with the Chinese and the Taiwanese and the U.S. militaries all kind of staring at each other uh, in this uh, relatively confined space. Um, but, you know, I, again, I, I, I would urge people to listen to, to what James had to say, because he did talk uh, he was a, he's able to talk about the what it means, the political relevance to Taiwan of having a Speaker of the House visit, even if, on a symbolic level. And, and that's something that, uh, you know, I, I really can't convey. So, uh, you know, definitely they should listen to that that interview. So let's move on now to Ukraine and let's talk about Ukraine and grain. Yes. So the big news out of Ukraine uh, this week has been that uh, the Rizzoni, I, I'm probably mangling that, I apologize, but it's a Sierra Leone flagged cargo ship that has been kind of stuck in Odessa for months now with the Ukrainian grain loaded on board, uh, finally was able to leave uh, Odessa on Monday. Uh, this is under the new agreement that the Russians and Ukrainians have have signed on to that permits grain ships to pass through the Black Sea. It opens up channels, uh, you know, partial with partial demining and sort of careful monitoring. And th- this first ship 
the again the Rizzoni left it made its way to Istanbul where it was inspected by the Joint Coordination Center which is the Turkish Russian Ukrainian kind of effort to uh, or office that's supposed to monitor this agreement and is supposed to inspect these vessels to make sure there's no like weapons aboard or anything any kind of untoward activity going on it's just grain shipments uh, it passed inspection went through the Bosporus as far as I know uh, is on its way to Lebanon although it may already have arrived by this point or by the time people listen to this certainly I would expect it would have arrived. So with that kind of first test case done, there are about, I think, 27 ships uh, in, in similar conditions. They've been sort of sitting uh, at Black Sea ports in Ukraine with grain loaded on board waiting to go. They could st- all start moving now, potentially. The, the coordination center says it can handle uh, up to, I think, three ships a day in terms of these inspections. Uh, so you could see things start to move a little bit faster. Uh, there was a report Today, earlier this morning on Thursday, that the first ship entering the Black Sea to travel to a Ukrainian port to load on grain uh, had done that. So that's another fairly big milestone. Um, and and so, you know, this is good. This is good news. I mean, you know, under the under the you know consideration that the war is still going on and uh, things are awful in that sense, the fact that there are grain ships moving means this grain is going to get to market, which means global food prices could come down a bit. Uh, that could ease a lot of pressure on places like Lebanon and, you know, other countries that are heavily dependent on Ukrainian and Russian grain, on humanitarian relief efforts around the world. A lot of the agencies are very dependent on at least on the price of grain being affordable so that they can use their uh, their funds to, to, to buy as much food as possible to distribute to people. So these are all good things, assuming that this agreement holds and that these vessels continue to make the trip. Right now, they're under a 120 day agreement. The idea is to get all of the tens of millions, really, uh, of tons of grain uh, that are sitting in in these port cities uh, or in these Ukrainian ports uh, in silos, basically, to get all of that moved out and shipped and and sent on to to markets elsewhere. There could be an extension. There is an optional extension for another month if it looks like 120 days isn't going to be enough to get the job done. Uh, But then beyond that, you know, are we going to find ourselves right back in this situation in like three or four months? Uh, That's possible. Uh, They would have to there would have to be an extension uh, agreed to uh, under this agreement to to kind of perpetuate uh, these shipments for the next for this year's harvest for next year's harvest. Uh, So that still remains to be seen. But hopefully if this goes well, then there would be no problem kind of maintaining it indefinitely. uh, But we'll see. So let's turn now to an update on the fighting. Yes. So uh, there hasn't been a lot to talk about in terms of the fighting. Most of the activity appears to be going on in southern Ukraine right now, where uh, the Ukrainian military has been using its swanky U.S. and uh, U.K. and now German, I think, artillery. Although I don't, may, may, they may not have taken ship, uh, taken receipt of the German uh, stuff yet. Uh, but at least U.S. And, and U.K. artillery, kind of longer range artillery, to pound. Russian positions in mostly Kherson Oblast. Uh, they, the Ukrainian military has claimed that it's killed dozens of Russian soldiers, that it's, ca- it's recaptured or retaken uh, a number of uh, kind of settlements or populated areas, villages, I would, I would say is probably the best uh, way to think of it, in Kherson over the last few days uh, or the last you know, week or so. Uh, I would take all those claims with a grain of salt, but this is where most of the action is. And it seems like 
the Russians have responded by moving forces from eastern Ukraine where they were, uh, you know, advancing in, in Donetsk Oblast or at least preparing to resume in advance uh, in Donetsk Oblast. Uh, it seems like they may have redeployed uh, some of those forces to the south uh, to kind of counter this Ukrainian offensive. So that's left uh, things in the Donbass a little bit kind of on edge. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, uh, did issue a general evacuation order for Donetsk presumably, you know, anticipating some more serious conflict in that uh, in that region. I'm not not sure quite how many people have obeyed that order. There seem to be, from what I've read, a number of, of folks who are staying put despite this being sort of a mandatory evacuation and uh, things needing. Uh, but but they, they they don't seem to be uh, going. Uh, some of them have, but many have not. So let's move to Iraq. And, and Derek, could you give us an update on what's been going there? There's been a lot of action in the last few weeks. Right. Uh, supporters of Iraqi political boss Muqtada Sadr uh, stormed into the Iraqi parliament building in Baghdad on Saturday for the second time in less than a week. They did it last Wednesday, uh, occupied the building then for about two hours. On Saturday, they occupied the building and just stayed. This time, they vowed to stay put until their demands are met. We reject corruption and corrupt politicians. Sudan is a tool in the hands of foreign powers. He and his colleagues work against Iraq. He won't do anything for our benefit. Uh, Sadr's movement issued a statement on Saturday announcing that the demonstrators will be engaging in a sit-in until further notice. Uh, the goal being to prevent parliament from meeting and holding new votes on either a new president or prime minister. Uh, Sadr wants to force a new election. He doesn't want uh, a government to be formed at this point because he's kind of pulled himself out of the government for formation process. Things changed a little bit uh, briefly on Monday and Tuesday. On Monday, there was a protest by Sadr's Shia rivals uh, in the coordination framework. This is an alliance of Shia parties that are, uh, you know, kind of clashing with Sadr politically at this time. Well, there was almost a uh, an actual violent clash because they turned out a number of protesters. Uh, their protesters protested outside of Baghdad's green zone. So they were separated from Sadr's supporters who are inside the green zone and indeed inside the parliament building. At one point, the demonstrators did seem like they were threatening to enter the green zone, which could have sparked uh, some kind of violent confrontation between the two groups. But leaders uh, of the coordination framework then issued calls to their supporters to stay outside the green zone. It appears that they kind of blinked. They, they you know, looked at the possibility of confronting Sadr and his people and and decided that they would be better served not to do that. On Tuesday, uh, uh, somebody affiliated with Sadr or maybe Sadr himself issued a tweet uh, ordering his supporters to leave the parliament building, but to continue their sit-in uh, inside the green zone, kind of outside in tents and, and things like that. It's unclear why he did that. It's unclear. It's for even more unclear why the next day on Wednesday, Sadr issued uh, or uh, delivered a televised address where he told his protesters to stay inside the parliament building and to stay there until his demands are met. And his demands are for a new election. Mostly, uh, he also claims to want some unspecified constitutional changes. Uh, but primarily, this is about forcing a new election. And it looks like, you know, we kind of went through this, these ups and downs over the last few days, but it looks like these people will be staying in the parliament building until Sadr gets what he wants or until somebody uh, tries to force them out, which could lead to 
really serious violence. I mean, could lead. I mean, I hesitate to use the term civil war, but that's that would be the path you'd be on in that situation. So let's move to our final topic today, which is actually a bit of good news, and that's the ceasefire in Yemen. Yes, uh, we can briefly just say that uh, UN Yemen envoy Hans Grunberg issued a statement on Tuesday announcing that Yemen's warring parties had agreed to extend their four-month ceasefire for at least another two months. Uh, this was just hours before the four-month ceasefire was set to expire. Uh, there was a lot of kind of clenching and white-knuckling about this, whether the, they would agree to extend it again. Uh, this is the second time they've agreed to extend it for two months. Uh, Yemen's president, the Yemeni government's presidential council and the rebels' supreme political council both later confirmed Grunberg's statements that they had agreed to, to, to this extension. The UN, Grunberg and the UN, had been seeking an expanded ceasefire. So they wanted something longer. They wanted something that had more serious commitments to, you know, kind of ending the war on a permanent basis. But I think this is probably the best possible, the best realistic outcome here uh, was just a simple extension because, partly because the terms of the ce the initial ceasefire, which was agreed to in early April, uh, still haven't been fully implemented. The, those terms called for easing uh, what is basically a rebel siege of the city of Taiz. They called for opening up roads and passage through like and across the front line uh, in various parts of Yemen. N very little of that has happened. Uh, there's been some progress in terms of allowing kind of flights into and out of Sena'a, but not to the extent that the ceasefire original, originally envisioned. There's been some progress in terms of easing the Saudi blockade of northern Yemen in terms of food and fuel uh, coming in, but again, not to the extent envisioned by the original ceasefire. So uh, under those conditions, with the original ceasefire still kind of, you know, with elements of it still kind of flapping in the wind and not having been implemented yet, uh, I think this two-month extension was probably, you know, the best uh, outcome any, anybody could have really hoped for. So on that actually happy note, Derek, thank you as always for your incredible knowledge. And uh, everyone, thanks for listening. See you next week. Actually, see you what, in the, in tomorrow, because you definitely all listen to our bonus episode. So see you yes, tomorrow. exactly. See you tomorrow. Bye. Bye. Bye.